0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Okay! Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. First of all, I want to thank any of you who are out here today. We just had a flash storm, a couple inches of snow on my way over here, twice from my home till here. My car went skidding and fishtailing. So if you're here, it means you're either A, a very good driver, B very, very brave. C both of them. And I'm gonna go with C for you guys. So thank you very much. I want to thank the amazing staff at Showbutt and Partners Detroit for arranging this incredible lunch and learn. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's filled with hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of incredible Torah content. Don't trust me, verify this information. Go ahead, start clicking your way through, listening to all the classes, counting them as you go with a little clicker. If you make sure you get one of those clickers that can count up to 300,000, because that's where about they're going to be. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Here we go, let's get started. And before we get started, a quick word of thanks to our sponsor, Baruch Atta Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Sha'akol, Niyeh This week's Parsha is Parsha's Teruma. The Parsha that starts the story of the building of the tabernacle. What is a tabernacle, you ask? Do you not have a tabernacle in your house? I always keep a couple tabernacles around. (laughs) The word tabernacle is always one of my favorite words. Tabernacle, of course, is a mobile temple. A mobile temple. It's a temple that was able to be broken down and reassembled and broken down and reassembled as it was done dozens of times in the desert. That is what a tabernacle is. The Jewish people, let's just give a little bit of chronology. They received the Torah on Har Sinai, on the 6th or 7th of Sinai. Moses went up for 40 days. He came down. They were dancing around a golden calf. Not good. God wanted to destroy the people. Moses goes up as our very first and the best lawyer the Jewish people ever had in the beginning of a long history of Jewish people being defense attorneys for various heinous crimes. Moses goes up to Shemaim and begs God not to wipe out the Jewish people, which was God's plan at that time. For 40 days, God, uh, Moses begs Hashem, and in the end, Hashem says, okay, I'll uh, I'll, I'll let it go, but I don't, want to have any, I don't want to have anything to do with them. So I'm just going to send a malach, I'll send a messenger who will take care of them. Basically, I'll have an escrow lawyer. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> when people are going through a, a, a divorce or people are going through a business breakup, there's often very strict rules. You don't get to call your spouse. It doesn't work like that. You call your lawyer, your lawyer speaks to their lawyer, their lawyer speaks to the spouse, and then their spouse speaks back to the lawyer, and the lawyer speaks to the lawyer, back to you, which is, if you're wondering why, divorces often cost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. During recessionary periods, people are unlikely to get divorced, not because they're getting along better, but because divorce is so expensive. Now, Hashem says, I don't want to deal with the Jewish people. These people spit in my face. I gave them the Torah, I I married them at Mount Sinai, and they're still at the wedding hall. And they're dancing around the golden calf. They're committing adultery. They're dancing around with another god at my wedding hall. So I won't kill them, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. But Moses says, no, 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 no. Moses goes back up on the first of Elul and says, God, that's not the relationship we're looking for. We understand you're angry and justifiably so. We messed up in the biggest of ways. But we need a closer relationship, and we're begging you for it. And Moshe spends another 40 days, after which Hashem comes down on Har Sinai. Hashem comes down on Mount Sinai, and says, Salachti Kedvarecha, I have forgiven you. That is on Yom Kippur. The day after Yom Kippur, God says to Moses, I want you guys to make me a house. I'm moving in. Not only am I not going to be living with a lawyer in between us, a malach who will take care of you, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to do... By the way, God's greatest punishment to people is I don't want to have anything to do with you. What does God say to the snake? The snake, the serpent who made Adam and Eve eat, not made, nobody makes you do a sin, but enticed. The serpent who entices Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what is Hashem's punishment to the the snake? You're going to crawl on your belly and you'll eat dirt all the days of your life. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Wherever you go, you've got a meal. Always at your ready. No matter where you are. There's always There could be famines. There could be droughts. The snake, is, the serpent is taken care of. There's dirt everywhere. But the sages explain to us what Hashem is saying is my punishment to you is I don't want to deal with you anymore. Other animals, whatever this means, obviously, we have to understand that our other animals... <inaudible> Hashem feeds everybody, even the sons of the crow who call out to God because the crow is cruel and doesn't want to feed its own kids. So when the sons of the crow, the children of the crow, call out to Hashem, Hashem takes care of them. But Hashem says to the serpent, I don't want to ever hear from you again. I'm DCing our relationship. You guys know what DC means? Discontinued, right? You go to the supermarket and where's your favorite brand of pickles? It's been deceived. Evidently, you were the only guy who liked those pickles and you weren't buying enough. It's been deceived. <laughs> that product has been discontinued. Hashem says to the serpent, You've been deceived. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to deal with you. You have food wherever you want it. Don't call out to me. Don't call. Don't write. Don't email. Don't text. Hashem's initial response to the Jewish people was, I want to punish them severely for this incredible breach of the fidelity of our marriage. Then Moshe begs him and he says, Okay, I won't kill them, but I'm de-seeing the relationship. I'm just going to have a malach take care of them and that's it. And then finally when Hashem relents to Moshe's second set of 40 days of prayers and besieging on behalf of the Jewish people... Hashem says, I've forgiven you. And how does He show that He's truly forgiven? The next day, Hashem says, I'm coming. I'm going to move in. And that's where the curtain opens on our Parsha. And here it is. V'yidabra Hashem HaMosheh and Hashem speak to Moses, saying, Dabra Elbine Israel, speak to the Jewish people, ve truma, and they shall take for me a donation. May Ace kol Isha Sheyidven Uliboh from every person whose hearts motivates him, who's got a halev, nobility of heart and the desire to give, tikchu es trumasi, you shall take my donation. Now I have the honor here in Detroit to Bar Hashem, have people come from Israel all the time who are in various needs, medical needs, wedding needs, bankruptcy needs, eviction needs, whatever it is, and they come to the people in America and they offer us the ability to give them money, so the other day, a guy comes knocking at my door. I open up the door. I say, welcome, please come in. I sit him down. Can I offer you a drink? Can I offer? Yeah, okay, I'll give him a drink. Some orange juice. I have my daughter bring it. And he says, I'd like, I'd like you to take a donation. I said, excuse me? I mean, <laughs> I have a daughter in seminary in Israel. <laughs> I probably could use a donation or two. But, you know, Baruch Hashem, I'm not taking donations right now. He's like, no, 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 I'd, I'd really like you to take a donation. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's a couple other people here in town. I can give you some addresses. If you have people who you'd like to take a donation, uh, you know, I, I know people in town who could use a donation. He says, no, 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 I, I'd like you to take a donation to me with a check for like $180. I'm like, wait, wait, I, I, I'm confused over here. You want to give me money or you want to... You want me to give money? I'm not sure over here. He's like, I want you to take a donation. That's the language over here Hashem is saying. The chuli truma, and take for me a donation. What does this mean? Don't you mean you want them to give a donation? Which, by the way, is the language that Hashem uses just later in the Torah, and two weeks from now, is Parshas ki sisa. When the Jewish people give the machat shekel. and what's the language? The language is, This is what they're going to give. And each person will give an atonement for his soul. It doesn't say they will take. It says they will give. But, but here, when talking about the truma, it says, I want them all to take a donation. So, of course, the sages talk about this. Why does it say take a donation? But I have a different question. Why did God even ask the Jewish people to fund the construction of the Mishkan? Right? The Mishkan was an expensive building. Enormous amounts of gold, silver, copper, all kinds of expensive wools. Do you know that wool, purple wool was considered royalty, it was very expensive, and it was considered the color of royalty, so much so that a commoner was not allowed to wear purple in many countries. <laughs> I, when I went to social work school, I had a professor. This woman taught me for an entire semester. I never saw her wearing anything that was not purple. Literally, shoes, stockings, pants, skirts, shirts, coat, glasses, everything, everything was purple. The purple lady. Now, you were, I guess she's saying, I'm royalty. Or maybe she's saying, we don't have to kowtow to the kings anymore. I have no idea what she's saying, actually. I have zero idea what she's saying. She was the purple lady. We don't ask any questions. But the bottom line is, purple wool was very expensive. Turquoise wool, linen, scarlet wool, all kinds of exotic skins. So it was a very expensive endeavor now guess what? The good news is the person whose house is being built happens to, the, the entity whose house is being built is very wealthy. God. <laughs> That's right. Cuz God like the Federal Reserve can print as much money as he wants. Okay? God God like the Federal Reserve, you know, there, there was a meeting of the Federal Reserve in New Zealand, right? Every every and the, the central bank in New Zealand. Every country has their own central bank. And literally on camera, they're like, because we're the central bank and we could just print as much money and they're going to have to use it. Uh, made a lot of people uncomfortable there. You're, like, you're saying the quiet part out loud. You're not supposed to say that you just print as much money and you give yourselves whatever salaries you want because you're the, <laughs> the central bank. But yes, yeah, so God and the Federal Reserve can print as much money as they want, but God can print money that's much more valuable because God can print. Gold and silver. Li hachesev v'li hazav To me is the gold, and to me is the silver, says the Lord. Or if you find a very old translation, it will say, sayeth the Lord. <laughs> now, not only did God have the ability to print and create all kinds of incredible wealth, God actually did, in the desert, print tremendous amounts of wealth. The Gemara in Yuma... Tractate Yuma, Daf Ayin Hei Amad page 75a, tells us in length about the Man. All kinds of amazing miracles that occurred with the Man, the Mana, that came down from heaven every day and had so many different miracles attached and associated with it. Here is one of the miracles. The Gemara says that along with the Man, miraculously came down Takshite Nashim women's perfumes and cosmetics. Now you may think, okay, how much is that, does that cost a lot? Well, well, well. Now cosmetics, I did some research today. Now it's actually, the, the, the responses are, are, are very dubious because I've gotten all kinds of responses over here. But I definitely did my research on what is the cost of cosmetics per woman in the USA today? Okay. Now, here's the number that's blowout low and doesn't make any sense to me at all because it's it's from a very respected market research firm. It's called Statista, and they do market research all over the world for corporations. They said that the average woman in 2022 spent $211.82 on cosmetics, bath prepar- preparation, and perfume. Now, th- that number is bizarre because... Statista also says that the beauty industry generates over $100 billion a year annually and over $180 billion on skincare alone. These numbers don't jive, but the other numbers I find on research seem to indicate much higher numbers. One poll, which is also a market research firm, they did a study recently and they said that women in America spend on average... a year on their appearance. Now some of you are saying, no, 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 it's not $3,756. It's $3,750. Easy, easy. Stop with the extra six. No, that's a wild number. But here's even the crazier one. It said that men spend $2,928. I don't think I spend... Six-sevenths of what my wife spends, okay? Because according to that, again, roughly the men are spending about 80% of what the women are spending on beauty, and, and, and I'm not. Now, of course, they talk in great length about the rise in popularity in grooming products for men, all the product that people are putting into their beards. And that is expensive. Now, of course, this beard is a 100% organic, non-product beard. <laughs> I am not spending 2,900... And eighty-two and twenty-eight dollars on on beard care. But if you go to Williamsburg, I'm sure you could find some hipsters who are spending a couple thousand dollars a year on their beard and the grooming and the trimming and the sp- uh, there are actually people in the in the from community in Flatbush that go down to Williamsburg <laughs> to like the hipster barbershops to get their beards groomed because nobody knows how to groom a beard like a hipster. Okay, but that number is pretty wild. Three thousand seven hundred and a year, just to give you um, a little bit of a breakdown. Women spend an average of $51, I think a month, on the face alone. $28 on makeup, $34 on haircuts. Yeah, it can't be for the year because if you get like two haircuts a year, it's definitely more than $34. So it must be a month. $51 $51 on the face, $28 on makeup, $34 on haircuts, $23 on moisturizers, $17 on anti-aging, $15 on hair products. And for the fitness inclined, and here men spend more than women, $106 a month on gym memberships and all these kinds of supplements, you know, all vitamins which are by the way a massive massive global fraud industry, the billions of billions of dollars we spend on ridiculous supplements that really don't do anything for you. Fitness apps, etc., etc. So when Hashem was sending down with the man, you know, this tachshit nashim, this uh, perfumes and the and the uh, cosmetics, the anti aging creams, that was a pretty valuable thing that Hashem was sending down there. What else did Hashem send down with the mana? Now I don't think it was wrapped in L'Oreal packaging back then, okay? Or, but it, whatever, however, it came down. You know, but but the bottom line is the Gemara says Hashem would send down with the man tachshit Nashem, the various salves, ointments, whatever women used back then. What else were sent down with the man? The Gemara says Tzike Kadera Tzike means spices that are made to liven up your food. Now, just to understand to uh, to us today, you could walk into your local Sam's Club and buy these big you know jars of pepper. You know, all kinds of spices for like $4 eight, with inflation, $8, whatever it is. But it's relatively cheap, just to understand how valuable spices were. Peppercorn was an expensive spice throughout all of antiquity. In Rome, pepper was the most expensive spice. When there was a civil war in England and Normandy in the years 1138 to 1153... Rents were paid specifically in peppercorns. Why? Because during this time of war, now let me see if you could figure out any kind of parallels. When the governments were spending tons of money on war, they started debasing their currency by printing more money than they had and people started realizing that the local currencies weren't as valuable as they thought, so they were desperate to find something that you couldn't debase, and you know what you couldn't debase? Peppercorns. <laughs> or Bitcoin. But they didn't have Bitcoin back then. Imagine the world in 1138 if there was Bitcoin. And this, by the way, just to, just, you may know that I'm a little bit of a, you know, a Bitcoin fanatic. Do you understand that our ability, the amount of war we have in the world... I, I don't know, if I've, have I spoken about this before on a Thursday? Fiat currency, which is the currency that we currently use, which is currency that is based on absolutely nothing, right? And people say, what backs your Bitcoin? I say, what backs your dollar? <laughs> nothing. Oh, the, the, the full promise of the government? The full promise of the government to what? That it should be worth a dollar? My dollar today is definitely not worth a dollar from 20 years ago worth a whole lot less so what what exactly does it mean the only thing i can promise you about the american dollars they'll be printing a lot more of them because we're already 34.2 trillion dollars in debt right now and our interest on our debt alone is over a trillion dollars so i can assure you of one thing i can promise you about the american dollars they will be printing way more of them and the faster that printer goes burr the more your dollars will be worth less that much i can assure you of and that's the history of all fiat currencies. But here's the point I want to bring home. In the olden days, when a king wanted to make a war, he either had the money in his coffers or he didn't. If he didn't have the money in his coffers, he generally couldn't go and do a campaign of war. Now he could do a couple of things. He could tax the people gold and silver and then raise the money to go to war. But then again, he was always running the risk of the people rebelling because they were just overtaxed. He could, if the country was attacked, he could then encourage the citizens to buy bonds or whatever, you know, loan money to the government and the people would do it if they were patriotic because they realize they are being attacked. So either we give the money to the government who will then raise an army and put down the attack or the attackers will run over us and take all of our money anyway. But basically, a king couldn't just embark on wars well, guess what? In 1971, as America was in the throes of the Vietnam War, spending billions of dollars we didn't have, the government ran out of money because there wasn't enough gold to back the dollar. There was something called the gold standard. Every dollar was redeemable officially, ostensibly, for $35. But America wanted to keep printing money to fund the war in Vietnam. So what did they do? They said, we are temporarily suspending the gold windows the words that Nixon used. Of course that temporarily is still going strong 50 years later. But they said we're not the dollar is not backed by gold anymore. And then there was a temporary dip in the dollar value, but then it started going up and we started printing and since then we've been involved in wars all over the world. Okay. War is funded by money that doesn't exist because you could just print money and buy weapons, guns, tanks, warplanes? How do you think there's so much money to fund Hamas? How do you think there's so much money to fund Ukraine and Russia? All the, all the monies distort everything, which creates, unfortunately, the horrors and misery of war. In any case, spices were valuable. Peppercorn was the most expensive spice. And people used to pay their rent with peppercorn. Even up to the 18th century, people were still paying rent in peppercorn. Wars were were fought over spice trade routes, and America was discovered in an attempt to get to the Indies, the East Indies. They were trying to get to India to get more spices with a quicker trade route. So spices were so valuable, America was discovered in the attempt to find an easier way to get spices. Okay. And, of course... What else the Gemara says? The man, when Hashem sent down the man, along with it came jewels. Avanim tovos. Jewels came down with it. So if you can imagine, you came in the morning to get your mana, it wasn't just breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was breakfast, lunch, dinner, anti-aging cream, moisturizer, eczema-combating creams, peppercorn, saffron, you know, Cajun spice, and a couple rubies, and maybe a nice little uh, pearl or two. Hello, Mickey Moto. So God had the ability to send out all the money in the world. What God could have done to make the Mishkan is God could have just, one day the Jewish people wake up, and there, there's the Mon all across the fields, and in the middle of the Jewish camp is a massive pile of gold, silver, copper, acacia wood. Blue wool, red wool, scarlet wool, dye, purple wool, linen, oils, spices. Everything could have been right there in neat orders. It could have even had little Ikea inscriptions. Insert here. You're know, like, this is for this. There's A and B and C. Hashem could have done it all. Why does Hashem have to ask us for the, for the money for the tabernacle? So it will mean something. Very good. So it will mean something. The Torah has a commandment you should love Hashem. How do you command me to love Hashem? Either I do or I don't. You can't command love. <coughs> How do you command me to love Hashem? So there's an insight. You also are told in a commandment to love your fellow Jew. How does Hashem command you to love somebody? I don't like him. He's annoying, he's loud. He's brash. He's always sticking his nose in business that is not his. He's cynical and offensive. I don't like him. What do you want from me? How do you tell me you have to love him? So the answer is, my friends, that there is a formula to create love. And the formula is, give to somebody and you'll start to love them. This formula is found in the Kuntras HaChassad, in the pamphlet about love, in the great work of Mikhtar Melio, the letters from Elijah, from Rabbi Elio Dessler. He says, we think we love people who give us stuff. No, you love the people you give to. Why do parents love their children more than children love their parents? Because parents give and give and give to their children more than children give to their parents. And hence, parents love their children more. If you want to love something, give to it. Now, there's even deeper psychology in here. Everyone loves themselves. That's the one thing we all love. Now, we may have a love hate relationship with ourselves, depending on how our self esteem is doing that day, but we love ourselves. When I invest so much of what I worked hard for and I give it to you, I see you now as an extension of me. And now you're part of me too. And now I give to you and you're part of me. We become bigger through giving. Hashem wants the Jewish people to love Hashem. So Hashem says, I'm going to ask you to give up of your resources. I'm going to ask you to give up your gold and your silver and your copper. Expensive things in the desert. I want you to give it to me. And by you giving to me, you will love me. If there's somebody in Shul that you just don't like, because he's brash and offensive and cynical, and always sticks his nose where it doesn't belong... Do something for him. It's hard. I don't like this guy. I don't want to do anything for him. He's annoying. He's a pain. No, I understand. But there's a commandment in the Torah. You shall love your fellow like yourself. How do I do that? Give to him. And I can tell you, as they say in the Gemara language, hava this happened to me, and I've told this story before. There was a guy, when I was in yeshiva, that I really, really didn't like. And I went to my rabbi, and I asked him, what should I do? I feel conflicted. I, I just hate this guy. And he told me to do something for him, and I started praying for this guy, because I wasn't really comfortable. I wasn't going to bring him an offering every night. You know, Every night, when he would get back to the dorms, I would bring him cosmetics and spices and expensive jewels. <laughs> Wouldn't go so well. So instead, I started praying on his behalf. And we ended up becoming close friends. Very good friends. When I go back to New York, I have lots of friends. I call them up, let's get together. I, I want to see him. Hashem says, I'm commanding you to love me. How are you going to learn to love me? Do something for me. Do something for me. Which reminds me of a story... There was an article in the Jerusalem Post written many years ago by a professor at Hebrew U where he writes, he was an American who had moved to Israel, he was a professor at Hebrew U and he writes about how he had a friend of his who unfortunately lived, you know, lived back in America who had a son who had, I'm trying to remember, what's the name of the disease where a person ages very, very rapidly? You know what I'm talking about? Progeria? Yeah, progeria, thank you. This, he, this guy the professor had a friend back at home in America not at home home is Israel back away <laughs> uh, who had a son who had progeria and the son unfortunately went through a very difficult painful life and then passed away and he writes about how he got on the bus and went to the kotel and kicked the kotel you know and, and looked up at God and said things that should not be said he doesn't have a relationship with God this guy so you go to the kotel to kick the kotel and curse out God what have you given to God? Do you put on tefillin every day to try to connect with God? Do you donate towards synagogues? Do you donate towards Torah being taught, God's own personality written out on paper? Do you, do you support Torah with your own hard-earned money? Do you take the time to go talk to God in the morning and in the afternoon and the evening? Shachris, Mincha, Maariv. do you do that? No, you don't do that. So, of course, you don't have any relationship with God. So as soon as there's some bad news, you go to take it out on God. God says, I, I want the Jewish people to love me, but there's a formula for this. I've got to create the formula. The conditions need to be right for this. Now, there's a Gemara. Hashem wants you to be connected to Him, and He wants you to be connected to His home. He wants you to feel at home. In his home, so when you donate to it, you'll feel comfortable there. You want to go there, you know. They say here's a trick in fundraising, right? What's the best way to get a donor, a big donor? You have a guy who's very wealthy, he's in the community, and he never donates to your organization. What's the best way to get a big donor? If you speak to veteran fundraisers, they'll tell you the best way to get a big donor, right? You have, you have, uh, you have. You know, Jack Goldstein, who's very wealthy, he doesn't give a a penny to your organization. So you could try to come to him and bring special people, you talk to friends of his. No. Get him to donate a hundred bucks one year. Which is nothing for him, by the way. It's like five cents for him. Get him to donate a hundred bucks one year. He's already a donor of yours. He feels connected to your organization. Veteran fundraisers will say the best way to land a big donor is by getting him to give even something tiny at first. As they say in the Bitcoin community, get him off of zero. Right? Get off of zero. If you own zero Bitcoin, you're like, I don't know about this thing, I don't connect connect to it. The minute you own even $10 worth of it, you start learning about it and discovering what's the value. How could it be that something that was created just 15 years ago is worth $52,000 a coin right now? And isn't it so volatile? And doesn't it use so much electricity? There's answers to all this, but you don't care because you're not connected. Get off of zero. Buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. Suddenly you start learning more. You're connected to the asset class. You start hearing more about it. You click on an article that you see about it. Maybe you listen to a podcast. Maybe you start educating yourself and learning about why... The smartest people in the world are already moving into this. Okay. Get off of zero. Hashem says, I want you to feel connected to my home. I want you to feel that connection. So give. Give to me. I could could fund this whole thing myself in a second. I don't want to fund this thing myself because I want you to feel connected to my home. I want you to feel connected to my place of worship. I want you to feel connected to me. I want you to feel love for me. So please give to me. I don't need your giving, but I need you to have the feelings that one who gives gets. you got to do that again. I don't need you to give to me, but I need you to have the feelings that one who gives gets. Okay. Interestingly, there's a Gemara in Bavabastra, and it talks about the following. There was a a Roman governor called Tornus Rufus, in the Talmud, he's known as Tornus Rufus Russia. Tornus Rufus the Wicked. He was a Roman governor during the time of the great persecution of the Jews. And one day he mockingly asks Rabbi Akiva, the leading sage of the generation. So, Gamar Baba Daf Yod Ahmed Beyes. Sha'ol Tornus Rufus HaRusha, asked Rabbi Akiva. Tornus Rufus the Wicked, asked Rabbi Akiva. If your God loves the poor, then why doesn't he sustain them? You tell me your God is omnipotent, he can do anything. And you tell me your God loves the poor, because God says that in the Torah. So why doesn't he take care of them? He said to them, K'deishenitzoh bahem, kadesh bahem, Anu Bahem Midino Shall Gehenim. So that the rest of us can be saved from Gehenim. By giving to them. There's a phrase called Tsidaka Tatsil Mimavas. Charity saves from death. We want to be saved. We want to be rescued, so to speak. And the way we do it is by giving. Tzedakah Tatzil mimavas Hashem says there has to be Rabbi Kiva is saying there has to be poor people there so that we can be saved. It's not. Hashem could easily take care of all the poor in a second. But Hashem sets up the world in a way where there are people who are poor, so that everybody else can benefit out of giving to them and being saved from Gehenna and being saved from death. Now, by the way, you say, "Well, okay, that's good for everybody else. What about the poor person? What about the poor person? So everybody else gets saved. What about him? Why did he have to go through that so other people could be saved?" Now for that, of course, the answer is, we'll know when we get up there, but one of the simple answers is, maybe in a previous life, he was the rich guy who was mean to all the poor people, who made them feel like garbage. So Hashem says, guess what? Yeah, karma's difficult, my friend. You're going to go back down there, okay? You're going to go back down there, and you're going to be the poor guy, and you're going to be the guy going from door to door, and you're going to know what it feels like to be humiliated a thousand times over. Because you made people feel like that. Hashem is an incredible way of working it all out. Now, I want to suggest another idea. So that's the Gemara's answer. Just And, and maybe you could include it into Rebekah's answer. Maybe Hashem sets up a world where there are going to be those who are needy. And in certain ways we're all needy. The rich guy may have more financial resources, but he could be very emotionally needy. How often have you seen that? A guy who's very, very wealthy, but clearly emotionally needy, insecure. So everyone could be needy in different ways. Hashem sets it up. Why, if Hashem is so rich, why doesn't He take care of the poor? Because I want my children to love one another. And when you give to someone, you love them. So when the rich guy gives money to the poor guy, that's how he learns to love the poor person. And when the poor person <clears throat> teaches Torah to the rich guy's son, because the rich guy's son is too busy working all the time to teach his son properly, and he, he, this poorer person ends up spending more time and effort trying to turn this child into a beautiful, healthy, good Jew, which is not easy because the kid may be spoiled. So he, this this Rebbe pours his entire effort into trying to make this kid healthy, normal, happy, successful. He's giving to the rich person. So he should be able to love the rich person. We have a bracha that we make after, the, after blessing on, on drinks, on meat, on... Uh on Shahakal stuff is barakatem al k and 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 sorry and vegetables and fruits. Barakatha Hashem al Kinum Hashem, you are the source of all blessing, our God, King of the universe. Borin the Fash Rabbos, you create many souls, Vihesro Nun and their lackings on all that you created blessed is the king of the worlds why are we thanking Hashem for giving us lackings why are we saying Hashem you made many creatures many people with incredible lackings thank you for everything you're thanking Hashem for the lackings yes you are because it's through the lackings that you you can give to me because I'm lacking something and I can give to you because you're lacking something and that's how we learn to love one another loving is giving Giving is loving. Do you want to build a relationship with somebody and you have trouble with it? Start to do things on their behalf. Give to them. Find a way. Okay. That is idea number one. Now I want to talk a little bit about some of the actual vessels that were talked about in this week's Torah portion, because in this week's Torah portion, mostly they talk about the various vessels that would go into the tabernacle, as well as the the actual physical makeup of the building, the courtyard, the curtains surrounding it, the curtains on top of the building, the tapestries, the golden walls, all kinds of stuff. In the physical tabernacle, there were four vessels, okay? Okay? Outside, there was altars and other kinds of things. But inside the actual Beis HaMikdash, inside the temple, inside the tabernacle before it, there was only four vessels. In the Holy of Holies was the Aron, the Ark, which contained in it the luchos that Moshe brought down from, Har- Har Sinai, from Mount Sinai. And, by the way, it also contained the broken luchos. And that's why the Gemara says... How do you know that you have to show incredible, incredible respect to a Torah scholar that, unfortunately, as he ages, starts to lose a grasp of his mind and doesn't have the mental acuity that he used to have? Because the Gemara says, Luchos vishivrei luchos munachos ba'aron. Not only were the tablets put in the ark, but even the broken tablets were put on the ark. So when you see a broken tablet, which is a person who used to be a big Torah scholar, but as age takes its hold on him, his mind is not working with the same acuity, and he's starting to lose his ability to grasp, show him enormous honor and accord. Because the broken luchos were in the Holy of Holies in the Ark. So you have the Ark and the Holy of Holies. Outside you had three vessels. You had the shulchan, which was the table upon which the showbreads were placed you had the Mizbeach HaZahav, the golden altar, upon which the incense was brought every day, and you had the menorah, which was kindled every day with the lamps. Now, interestingly, three of the four had a crown. One didn't. The Aron, the Torah says, V'asisa lo zer Zahav Saviv. You shall make a crown for it. There was like a little, like a beautiful crown-like ornament, like the golden ornament placed around the rim of the aron to make it look like a crown. The shulchan, the table, had a crown. The altar had a crown. The menorah did not have a crown. Why not? So the shem mishmuel The Shemishmul, the great Slonimer Rebbe, says over a very, very profound idea. He says like this, the four vessels that were in the tabernacle correspond to the four crowns. There are four crowns in the Mishnah and Ethics of Our Fathers. The Mishnah says there are three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of royalty of kingship, and the crown of Kahuna of priesthood. The keser shem tov ola al gabehem, and the crown of a good name goes upon all of them. Let's see which ones correspond to what. The Ark, which contained the tablets, is the keser Torah. It represents the crown of the Torah. The shulchan, the showbread table that had all this incredible, beautiful bread on it, represents the king. The king is the one who's able to sustain his people and make sure they're financially comfortable. That it represents the crown of kingship. The altar represents the crown of the kahuna, of the priesthood, who brought the incense every day on the altar, the kohen. What does the menorah represent? The menorah represents Kesser Shem Tov, the crown of a good name. As a matter of fact, there's a verse Tov Shem, Mishemen Tov. The verse in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes says a good name is even better than good oil. But we see that connection between shame and Shemen, right? The word oil and the word shame are very connected. So the The menorah represents a good name. Now, interestingly, the three things, kingship, uh, Torah, and, and priesthood, and kahuna, they're a little bit dangerous. A person could become conceited. A person can easily become conceited if you are the big rabbi and everyone's always showing you such respect, God forbid you could you could become conceited. I remember I was once at a wedding and there was this rabbi there who was like, it was it was embarrassing the way he walked and he wouldn't get into the circle until everyone cleared the way for him and people were always pushing people out of his way and, and the way he comported himself it was just. It was so distasteful. His nose up in the air. It was like it was, The arrogance was dripping off of him, which is so unbecoming for the Torah. So unbecoming for the Torah. The Torah is supposed to flow down. The Torah is compared to the water. It's supposed to flow down to the lowest place. But you could have a person who's brilliant in Torah and charismatic and he develops a, a cult following around him. And walks around like, oh, I'm the big rabbi, everyone has to show respect to me, da-da-da-da. That's a danger. Next, if you're the king. Definitely could be arrogant if you're the king. I have to say, I find this also, and I find this distasteful. I find it distasteful in Democrats, I find it distasteful in Republicans. The last two presidencies... People getting up in front of a camera and saying, I did more for you than anybody else it's just it's so disgusting. So shameless. And it's both Trump and Biden getting up and saying, I did more in my thirty eight months in office and blah 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 which by the way, they're both so not true. (laughs) They both did such a terrible job. The federal debt's blowing out. Of course, everyone's like, well, there was good economy under Trump. Yeah, he was also blowing out our federal debt, and our children are going to pay for it for generations. For people to get up and say that, it's so disgusting. It's so... Ugh. How do you do it? We do it all the time. But that's, that's what kingship does. It gets to your head. You think you're like a god. And of course, the third one is the crown of the priesthood when you're the priest and everybody needs to come to you for absolution for kapara, for atonement you could get, it could get to your head the, 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 the story in Shmuel tells us that Eli HaKohen Eli the high priest, he had two sons Chafni and Pinchas they were acting in a very, very disgusting way they were conceited, they took advantage of people they treated people improperly because we're the Kohens, we get to we're the priests, we get to do whatever we want all three of those need a zair. They need a, a circle around them to contain them. A crown can be something that you wear to boast, but it can also be something that encircles you and says, stop. Keser Shem Tov, the crown of a good name, doesn't need anything. It can shine and shine and shine. Because there's no, there's no conceitedness there. You don't get a Kesser shem tov if one of your character traits is conceit. The people who are truly respected by people are not the arrogant ones. Now you may show fealty to an arrogant person. You may you know, flatter him. You may do whatever you want in your heart. You hate him. A kesser shem tov is a person who's humble, a person who's kind, a person who's loving. And who could, who could achieve it? Anybody. Anybody gets to be a kesser Shem Tov. You don't got to be royalty. You don't got to be rich. You don't got to be scholarly. You don't got to be brilliant. You don't got to be from the right family. Just be a really nice person. Just be really honest in your business dealings. Notice everybody. Go out of your way to greet everybody. Learn from everybody. And you'll have a Kesar Shem Tov. And there's no zair. There. There's no surrounding picket fence to keep you in. You can go as far as you want. You can, you can influence people far, far greater than you think. The light just keeps going and going, the light of the menorah. Fascinatingly, by the way, fascinatingly, the Shemishmul says we have three holidays, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, And he says they're each com- connected to one of the kessars, one of the crowns. On Pesach we were taken out of Egypt to become God's... Chosen people. We're like the the, the, the kings. We're like the Mamlechas Mamlechas Khan and we're like a, a, a kingsha, a kingdom. So he says that the Pesach is comparable to royalty. We have this unique relationship with the with the king of kings. Shavuos, of course, is the Keser Torah, is the crown of Torah. It's when we got the Torah. And Sukkot, he says, is compared to the Keser Kahuna. Sukkos commemorates the Anani Hakavod, the clouds of glory with which Hashem surrounded us with, and those came in the merit of Aaron the priest. On each one of those Yomim Tovim, there's also a judgment on the Jewish people. On Pesach, we're judged on the grain of that year. On Shavuos, we're judged on the fruit of that year. And on Sukkot, we're judged on the water. Those are ones you could easily become conceited. Oh, you think you're better because you're a Jew? You think you're like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm from the royal class. I'm a Jew. Well, let's judge you a little bit. Let's see how you're doing. You think you're better because you have the Torah and other people don't? Now, Of course, by the way, you are better if you actually follow the Torah and do it with humbleness. You are better because you're following God's word more, more closely than other people. But if you feel conceited about it, there's a judgment on the fruit. Oh, on Sukkot, you think you're better because you're the, the priesthood of the world? You get judged on the water. What is the Kesser Shem Tov that applies to everybody and there's no judgment whatsoever? Says the Shem it's Shabbos. Shabbos is the Keser Shem Tov. Shabbos, there's no judgments. There's a kabbalistic prayer we say on, on, on Friday night. Some people say kagavna. All judgments are barred on Shabbos because Shabbos is the Keser Shem Tov. Shabbos is the crown of the beautiful name. It's, it's applicable to anybody and everybody and it doesn't come with conceit. It doesn't come with any kind of risks. It's the limitless crown. The crown, the, 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 the crown, like the menorah, that just keeps illuminating out and out and out. May we, indeed, remember, number one, to give and give and give. To who? Both to Hashem, by supporting His Torah, His causes, and to other Jews, so that we can increase our love for them. Hashem can take care of all of them. Hashem can make sure that no yeshiva ever has to fundraise again. In ten seconds. Hashem can make sure there's no poor people, but Hashem leaves them to us so we can support the yeshivas, so we can support the people who are in need. So we should love our fellow Jews and love the Torah and love Hashem. And let's remember the beautiful joy of Shabbos, the Keser Shem Tov, the crown of the good name that just keeps illuminating out and out. There's no arrogance associated with it. It's just beautiful communion with the Lord. And may we all appreciate our Shabbos, appreciate everything. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.